This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Good morning, good morning. He is risen. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It is so, so great to see you this morning. I am uh, honestly a little overwhelmed and, and out of words and causing feedback. We were on uh, Zoom last year for Easter, if you remember that, which was not as bad as, as I thought it would be. It was actually fairly memorable, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is a little bit better. It is so good to be in person. It's so good to be worshiping, and it doesn't hurt that it's like 72 and sunny, so thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, just overwhelmed with gratitude this morning. So if you're new here, we're so glad that you're with us. If you came with a friend, if you're exploring Christianity, if you are an out-of-town family member, whoever you are, one of our regulars, of course, uh, we are so glad that we are spending Easter together with you this morning. There we go. Now, every, every religion, every religion in the world has a visual symbol of its uh, religion, of its faith. Uh, you know, Islam has uh, its, its crescent moon. Judaism has the star of David. Buddhism has the lotus flower. This is true of secular systems as well. Marxism has a hammer and sickle. Nazism, of course, has the swastika. And in Christianity, there was this long discussion in the early church about what visual symbol to use to represent our faith tradition. And so the first symbol that was used was the fish, which was a symbol of, of the many disciples who were fishermen, of, of Jesus multiplying the fish and loaves. Uh, now, I think the early disciples pictured some bad bumper stickers that might come down the road, and so they voted against it. Now, several other symbols were used for a period of time, a, a cradle to represent the humble birth of our Lord, a, a dove to represent the Holy Spirit. Uh, a, a towel and water basin to represent Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But it was around the end of the second century that the church finally began to use the cross as the primary symbol of the faith of Christianity. Now, some people didn't like this idea because it was the most scandalous of any image that you could possibly use. It's a, it's a symbol of death, of torture, of, of crucifixion. I mean, it, it would be like the electric chair for us in our culture. Why would the Christians use this? I mean, why would, you, why would you lead with this, lead with the cross, when there are so many other dynamic elements of Christianity that you could use? 
but they realized that the idea of the cross was so central to Jesus' own life and ministry and teaching. Basically, the cross came from the very mind and heart of Jesus himself. Throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus again and again turning to what He came to do. In Mark 10, He said, I have not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. I believe it was eight times He said something to the effect of the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, and after three days rise again. Even at the height of his popularity as a, as a teacher and a healer, he set his face to Jerusalem where he knew he would be killed. And in John 12, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was for this very reason that I came. See, the cross was always on his mind. It was always before him. It was the reason that he came to earth. For Jesus, all roads led to the cross. And for us, on, on the other side of Calvary, all roads lead from the cross. All of history was coming towards this point, the cross. And from then, all history progresses from the cross as well. So this morning, this Easter, I want us to remember why we celebrate the resurrection at all. I want us to remember and meditate on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how this changes absolutely everything even now. So three things I want to look at, the centrality of the cross, the meaning of the resurrection, and then resurrection as a way of life. And so first, the centrality of the cross. Our text this morning says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And in verse three, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And so why do we need the cross? We need the cross because we are dead in our sins apart from it. We are dead in our sins, not, not struggling, not seeking, not in need of some kind of moral improvement or, or self-help. We are just we're just dead. We're not, we're not mostly dead, you know, like the character in the Monty Python movie. That's, uh, that's one for my 35-plus crowd. It's a little gift for you. All these young people, we got to stick together, all right? Not mostly dead. You are dead. Walking dead, like, like zombies, apart from Jesus. And the Scriptures say that all sin is deserving of death. We are separated from God. The Scriptures show that spiritual death is being separate from God. See, any sin against a perfect God is immeasurably offensive. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the type of sin or how great or how small the sin is. What matters is who you have sinned against. And if you've sinned against a perfectly holy God, He can no longer be in the presence of that sin. You might say, why doesn't He just forgive it? But we have to cling to the justice of God. Right, if somebody committed a, a horrible and, and heinous act of sin against you, you wouldn't want that person to just run back to the Father's arms and have God embrace them. No, there has to be some justice if God is going to be good. And so our sin against a holy God requires justice. It requires death, separation from Him. And so the Scriptures say the wages of sin is death. 
Now, our, our culture is basically the first in all of human history to teach that, that people are generally good. You know, older cultures taught uh, that there was a reality of good and a reality of evil, and that every one of us was a, a complex, complicated being with good and evil warring inside of us. But our, our modern culture tends to emphasize only the goodness. In fact, in many cases, they'll go so far as to say that any problem is not really a problem within us, but a problem with society or something that's been forced upon us. And so if somebody's bad, it's because they were, were raised bad or because their environment was poor. They didn't get the education that they deserved. But I want to suggest that this is the very reason why our culture is so overwhelmed, exhausted, worn out, burnt out. It's because if this is true, if we are, if we are good people at the core, and if, if perfection is attainable, then we will wear ourselves out trying to improve ourselves. If the idea is that we're generally good, we need to fix the things around us, get a little bit better until we are perfect, that is a completely crushing goal because it's just not rooted in reality. And so all these voices around us say, you can be free of anxiety and depression. You can take control of your money and your career and you can find wealth. You don't have to get sick. You don't have to even age. We've found diets. We've found medications for this. Your closets don't have to be cluttered. You just roll the t-shirts and get rid of the old books. Don't trust anyone who says get rid of old books. Get rid of e-books. Save the old books. I do roll my t-shirts. But it's the pursuit of perfection that drives us Insane. I mean, literally insane, detached from reality. We will never get there. No matter how many of the right images that we look at on Instagram or how many of the right steps that we take to further ourselves, we are not going to, to measure up to the standard of perfection that we ask of ourselves. No, we are, we are dead in our sins apart from God. And without Christ, without the cross, we will always remain separate from him. And everything else, it'll be like a wheel with nothing in the center, no hub. Everything will be disjointed and disconnected. Now, the British writer John Stott says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. And we've said throughout this series in Ephesians that the extent to which we acknowledge our own sin is the extent to which we will appreciate the gift of God's grace. The extent to which we wrestle with our own sin is the extent to which we can celebrate the resurrection, celebrate the gift of God's grace in our life. And you know, at Trinity, we talk a lot about practicing the way of Jesus together. That's our mission. It's to practice the way of Jesus together. We talk often of the renewal of all things that's promised. Ephesians talks about it more than any other place, that all things in heaven and on earth are now coming under the authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that means that everything has changed. But all of that is not to say that, that what we do is what's most central in Christianity. Right? Like the heart of Christianity is not what we do with Christ or for Christ. The heart of Christianity is what he has done for us. The center of Christianity, everything flows from one place, and it's the cross of Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, he resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Now, if you've read Paul's letters, they are the most brilliant, amazing, I mean, mind-blowing reflections on, on all of creation coming back to glory under Christ. I mean, it's this big, holistic vision of the gospel and the church and the world. And yet he says, even with all that, it counts as nothing compared to Christ and him crucified. Because none of that exists. None of that has hope unless Christ died, was buried and rose again on the third day. Now, the second thing is the meaning of the resurrection. The cross is nothing without a resurrection. So that's what we'll look at now. Verse 6 in our passage says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And whenever Christians talk about the cross, they're not just talking about the, the moment of crucifixion, but rather they're talking about the entirety of what Christ has done for us. The cross was, is something that we use as shorthand for the entire life, the obedience of Jesus, the sufferings and the, the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection and his ministry post-resurrection and his ascension and his reigning from heaven. It's all pictured when we say the cross. At the center, of course, is Jesus' suffering and his death in our place. But this is so important because the cross and the resurrection are absolutely inseparable. See, if the resurrection didn't actually happen, if Jesus died and is still dead today, I mean, he might be a great teacher, he might be a great spiritual leader, he might be a, a guru for us to follow, but he's not a savior. He's not the son of God, he's not the Messiah, and we are still dead in our sins. But if Christ did rise... If his death did pay the penalty for our sins, if he took the very punishment that we deserve, the wages of sin, if he paid all of that for us and then rose on the third day, proving that the sacrifice had been made, then that changes everything. I mean, literally everything changes from that moment on. Every aspect of our very lives changes by the power of the resurrection. I'll give you a few examples. First, Jesus' resurrection means that the cross was effective. When Jesus finally appeared to his disciples after he rose again, it all made sense. It is finished, he had said from the cross. Our sins are forgiven. God's justice is satisfied. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, the Old Testament says. And all of those endless sacrificial offerings, all of the animals, that was all pointing to one once-for-all sacrifice, the true Lamb of God, Jesus on the cross. Now, second, Jesus' resurrection means that we have been saved by grace. And I think Paul says it three times in this one paragraph, it's by grace you have been saved, verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved, verse 8. Not by works, it is the gift of God so that no one can boast. He's saying over and over, it's a gift of grace. And now if there was no resurrection, there would be no grace. But if Jesus didn't stay dead, if he did rise, then there is nothing that we have to do to add to his sacrifice. 
When he said it was finished, he really meant it. There was nothing for us to add, nothing for us to contribute. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to earn it. All we have to do is receive it by grace. That's what the word grace literally means in the New Testament, gift. We, we open it like a gift. That's all that we do. Now, third, Jesus' resurrection means God's love for us. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it goes on to say, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life or through his resurrection? Is there a better proof of God's love for you than Christ's death and resurrection? He did all of this to get you back. Now, fourth, Jesus' resurrection means joy and peace in this very life. Now, Coach John Mobley, last chance you. I know some of you have been watching this on Netflix. I finished it. It's so good. In one moment, he's sitting down with this, this young college basketball player who's struggling. I mean, this poor guy lost his father growing up, and then he lost his mother first year of college. And he's telling the coach he's coming in at 4 a.m. because he can't sleep through the night, so he just gets up and goes into practice. And Coach John is a believer. He sits him down. He says, you know what I'm going to say, right? He says, yeah, I know. He says, you know what I'm going to say? You need to listen to Scripture. You need to put Scripture on and you'll fall asleep because that's the only place where you can find peace. Without Scripture, you have no peace. And the player says, that's right, Coach. That's what I got. I got no peace. And so young man, or, or all of us, this is the one place to find joy and peace. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16 is one of those prophetic psalms a thousand years before the death of Jesus that, that looked forward to what was going to happen. And David said, Therefore my heart is glad. My body also will rest secure, because you will not let your faithful ones see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. And so one of the fruits of the resurrection is joy and peace in this life. Now, fifthly, Jesus' resurrection means purpose for our lives. Verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork or his masterpiece in another translation. He says that we were created with good works in mind. God laid out good works for us to walk in before the beginning of time. And so the resurrection empowers our life and service and our mission here on earth. Now, sixthly, Jesus' resurrection means love overflowing. I love the prayer of Paul in 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. It's a verse that we use a lot here at Trinity to show that when God's love fills our hearts, it overflows so that we return love to God, but then it overflows from there into love for the church, and then from there into love for the world. All this love is overflowing, and it all starts with the resurrection, the proof of God's love for us. Seventhly, Jesus' resurrection means hope for our suffering. You know, 2020 was a difficult year, I think, for every one of us. I kept thinking, I don't know if you saw that old movie with Will Ferrell, Stranger Than Fiction, where he's got like a narrator that's like, you know, narrating his life everywhere he goes. And at one point, the narrator says, little did he know. And he stops and he says, what? What don't I know? 
And I think about that like March 2020, little did he know. You know, you're sitting there at work with your coworkers, little did she know. The kids are in classrooms learning with their peers, little do they know. We were meeting in church, little did we know. And, and waves and waves and waves of suffering can come into our lives. And more seriously, I know that some of you are carrying burdens that are, that are immeasurably heavy this morning. Griefs that no person should ever have to bear. Pain that, that is not going away. Losses that have left deep scars in your heart. And it's without the resurrection that we have no hope for any of this. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus has been risen from the grave as the first fruits of of a whole life of resurrection, then all of our suffering begins to make sense because we are living in a broken world. It, It doesn't totally make sense, but we know that it doesn't equal God's dissatisfaction with us. It means we are living in a broken world. And God sent his only son into this world to suffer, to do the ultimate suffering, the ultimate separation from God. What other God in any religion, in any world system comes and suffers and dies for his own people? Only Christ. Now, eighth, Jesus' resurrection means the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says you are no longer in the realm of the flesh, but you are now in the realm of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is now living in you and will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. I mean, that is overwhelming to think that the Holy Spirit is the the one who raised God from the dead. Now He dwells in each and every one of us to empower our lives to Christ-likeness as well. Ninth, Jesus' resurrection means a community of celebration. John Stott writes, whenever Christian people come together, it is impossible to stop them from singing. The Christian community is a community of celebration. Tenthly, Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. It says God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms. If we are one with Jesus in faith and we are united to him and his resurrection means our resurrection. And so in the spiritual sense, we are raised from this spiritual death once and for all to an eternal type of life. But it also means that one day we will rise just like Jesus rose with a physical body, a glorified, incredible, pain-free body. But that's not all. You thought the list went to 10. I'm going to turn it up to 11. This is the last one, I promise. Jesus' resurrection means the renewal of all things. The resurrection not only of us, not only of our bodies, but the, the renewal and the resurrection of absolutely everything in all of God's creation. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. All right, this is spring. We're starting to see some of those first fruits. What that means is that the harvest is coming. Everything else is about to be beautiful. We have this little taste, and that's Christ's resurrection. But a whole beautiful harvest is sure to follow. The scriptures say that one day everything will be made new, a new creation where Jesus reigns from the throne, our crucified and risen King. Now, that's just 11 things that the resurrection means for us. I could, I could go on, but I've got to pick up barbecue in a little bit. We've got lunch, so let me keep moving. 
Third, resurrection as a way of life, the final thing. A couple nights ago, we held a, a Good Friday service right here. And Good Friday, is, it was a beautiful service. It's a heavy, it's a somber service. There, there's not the joyfulness and the celebration that we have this morning. It's, it, it's done at night. It's, it's darker, you know. The, the readings are, are heavy. And in church tradition, what would happen is that these services would be held in chapels, you know, before electricity. And so the tradition was to blow out a candle. The whole service was candle that blow out a candle after each reading or each song or each uh, scripture. And so progressively throughout the Good Friday service, it would get darker and darker and darker. And the idea was that you are moving further and further into the tomb with Jesus, identifying with his death and burial until at the end of the service, the final candle was, was snuffed out and everyone would leave in total darkness and silence. Now, it's a powerful image. And then compare that to Easter Sunday. I mean, on Easter Sunday, everything is bright. We hold the service in the morning. Sometimes it's a sunrise service. We had a beautiful sunrise this morning. We have a, a perfect day of weather. I mean, we have a beautiful place to meet. There's flowers on the trees behind you. And in a lot of churches, or at least those that don't meet in rented spaces, there are bright colors everywhere. There are, there are flowers, there are banners, streamers, all of this color, all of this life to represent the resurrection. And the contrast between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it's so stark. If I'm being honest, I often live somewhere in between. See, yesterday was Holy Saturday. It's, it's the day of silence. It's the only day in the traditional church calendar that has no liturgy. There's no scripture readings. There's no hymns to, to follow. There are no prayers. The one day where the church does no work because Jesus is in the grave. And I thought it, it must be odd to go into a church building on Holy Saturday because everything's probably set up for Easter Sunday. The flowers have been delivered. The, the bright colors have been hung. Everything is ready, maybe communion set out, maybe the baptismal waters have been filled, and yet nobody is there yet. All of this beautiful religiousness and yet just sort of emptiness inside. And if I'm being honest, I think I live in that sort of mood, the mood of Holy Saturday, as much as I do anything else. It's so hard to sustain the mood of Easter Sunday. And so my question is, how do we get from Holy Saturday as a way of life to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday as a way of life. And what we saw a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 3, I think, has our answer. Paul prayed that we would grasp the love of Christ. And if you remember that word grasp, it's a really odd word in the Greek because it means to wrestle with or most literally to, to ambush or to sack a city. And Paul, this is the word that he chooses for our prayers to, to know the love of Christ. He prays that we would grasp with all of the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ. That we would struggle and, and fight and wrestle with, not necessarily with God, but with ourselves, with our own souls. That we would like wrestle and, and massage into our own souls the very love of Christ that we would have an experience of Christ that surpasses knowledge, not apart from knowledge, but, but through knowledge into experience. 
The New Testament doesn't teach a Christianity that saves people and doesn't change them. It doesn't teach a Christianity that's mere head knowledge or, or maybe some kind of happy, clappy, you know, hyper-spiritual Sunday morning Christianity. No, the New Testament teaches a God who can be known and loved and enjoyed and treasured. The New Testament points us to a Savior who came down from the comforts of heaven to bear all of our sufferings, all of our sin, and to die upon the cross out of love for us. The New Testament points us to a life of meaning, of of fellowship together, of the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament shows us all that Christ has done for us. And our role, our role, our, our response to all that God has done, it's to grasp. It's to pray with all of our energies, to grasp, to understand with all of the power of the Spirit, the love of Christ. Specifically, the prayer is that we would know how long, how wide, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. That we would be intimately aware of the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. That we would be wrestling with this, always trying to get it into our souls. And where else do we see Christ's love more clearly, more beautifully than on the cross and in the resurrection? And so I want to compel you, don't settle for the life of of Holy Saturday with all of the the religious stuff but none of the life inside seek God's face seek him for who he is look to Jesus on the cross rejoice in the empty tomb that means your salvation he is risen and my prayer for us is that we would cling to this cross that we would know and believe all that the resurrection means for us. And that we would grasp with all of the power of the Holy Spirit how wide and how long and how high and how deep is this love of Christ for you and me. Let's pray.